Recorded live. This show is brought to you by TalkShoe, where anyone can create their own internet talk show. Check it out at talkshoe.com. Welcome to IAQ Radio. have changed. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, whichever you prefer, and today's sponsors include IE Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry at ieconnections.com, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, and the IAQ Training Institute. Your source for IAQ training you can trust, found at iaqtraining.com. To start today's show, I'd like to introduce some of the players that we have with us today. In the studio, we have Cliff Zlotnick, the president of Microband Systems. It's good to be here, Joe. Thank you, and welcome. Harry Valgich, or H-Dog, also with Microband Systems, one of our technical people. Glad to be here, Joe, for the debut. Welcome, Harry. And Zach Zlotnick, cyber jockey, or CJ, he will be helping us to run the show here. And welcome, Zach. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Okay. We will also be bringing in a uh, guest speaker a little bit later in the show, someone that I have uh, worked with quite a bit over the last five years and in my oh, 48 years now of either being in a classroom or teaching uh, as a student or an instructor, one of the two, uh, probably my favorite instructor and uh, one of my favorite people, Dr. Dietrich Wah, will be with us later in the show. We are here because we're introducing a new way to communicate, discuss, and educate anyone interested in healthy indoor environments. The last five years of my life, I've spent a great deal of time working with indoor environments, people who help with investigation, remediation, maintenance, and management of indoor environments. It's been an interesting five years. Um, Prior to that, I was heavily involved in other types of indoor environmental issues, uh, such as asbestos, lead-based paint, etc. But um, recently, we've been more involved with strictly indoor air quality issues and That's what we're going to focus on with this show. Now, how is the show new? This is something Cliff and I had talked about. Well, it's new because, number one, you're listening to it on the Internet, and uh, this is a new medium. It's a new day. There's no delay if you want. If you want, you can download it later. We hope to have a lot of fun with the show. 
We expect it will be an interactive show. For those of you that are interested in either calling in or using instant messaging, you can go to the TalkShoe.com site and you can register. And when you register, you can then join either on the instant messaging or you can call into the show live. You can also download shows at a later date to listen to at that point using your computer or your iPod. Um, at this point, I think I'd like to turn it over to Cliff for just a moment and get his thoughts on why he feels this is such a an interesting new way of communicating, educating, and bringing people within this industry together. I was always frustrated with chat rooms and list serves. They were impersonal. There was a delayed reaction. They really weren't fun. They really weren't interactive. And we hope that you'll give us a little bit of indulgence and some patience uh, as we get better working the system uh, as we go. Some of the components of the program are we'll have guests every segment. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity for people to stand on a soapbox if they've got an idea or a strong opinion uh, they want the world to hear. We're certainly going to look for that. We'll have an opportunity for debate. Uh, if people have two sides of an issue, we can schedule a debate uh, on the program. Uh, we're also going to have a lot of technical talk on the program as well. People are going to be able to call in with technical questions, or we'll actually have technical segments of the program devoted to specific issues that are of interest to our audience. Great. Thank you, Cliff. I think you summed that up very well. We envision doing things like having certification renewal credits available through this show. We have been working with some of the associations out in the indoor air quality industry in developing ways that people can listen to the show and then in a way of they could email us, um, get some questions, send in their response to the questions, and we can document their attendance similar to the way some industry publications will have a quiz in the middle of the industry publication. You answer the questions, you get your certification maintenance points, certification renewal credits, CEUs, continuing educations, however you'd like to, you know, whatever terminology you'd like to use. The other thing we'd like to do is do an occasional association watch section where we take a look at what the associations are, who they are, who do they represent, Maybe we'll follow the money. We'll take a look and see. We will also uh, be doing some things working with a group and a new program that IAQ Training has started called Certification Coach. More on all of that later, but um, I think at this point in time, it would be a great time to bring in our guest, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Uh, Dieter, are you on the line with us? Yes, I am. Glad to be here. Good to have you here. Dieter, I'd like to real quickly give the listeners a little idea of who you are. For those of out there that don't know you, um, Dr. Wow is a certified industrial hygienist. He has a doctorate's degree in industrial hygiene and occupational health, over 30 years of experience conducting indoor air quality investigations. He is a semi-retired, since I dragged him out of retirement not too long ago to help me out, I will never forget that. <laughs> <laughs> a 
professor from the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health. He still provides expert witness testimony for people and uh, uh, law firms, um, building owners, etc., as needed. And I have worked closely with Dieter over the last five years and have a tremendous amount of respect for his knowledge and also just the way he interacts with people. You rarely find that combination in an instructor where they have both the in-depth technical knowledge and the ability to communicate it. And we have with us one of the best at doing both of those things. So, Dr. Wildwood, I'd like to start with, we had uh, discussed the fact that you had done a great deal of research many years ago into what uh, maybe isn't an indoor air quality industry issue, but certainly is closely related. And um, that was some studies you did on cotton dust exposure. Well, certainly that was one of them. And uh, many of the other studies that we did with carbon monoxide and other chemicals uh, certainly do have applicability uh, to the indoor environment. How so? Did something break up over here? Oh, are you still? I didn't. Uh, Cliff had asked how how you feel that the um, these have applicability to the indoor environment. Well, because many of these chemicals uh, can be found in the indoor environment. At the Graduate School of Public Health, we had a toxicology section in the Occupational and Environmental Health Department. And right there you have it. It's Occupational and Environmental Health Department. Uh, we talked about uh, uh, off-gassing from building materials. In the old days it was formaldehyde and then a bunch of exotic uh, chemicals. Uh, so we, we, we studied um, carbon monoxide, and I, I don't know whether you can hear me. It, it seems Absolutely. to be break up once in a while. It doesn't matter. Um, so certainly uh, many of these chemicals which we studied, uh, do, we do find typically in an indoor environment. I think what I found interesting in in listening to you relay your story about the studies you did were was the fact that essentially at the time you did the studies you thought that possibly bacteria may have been causing these health problems. Could you explain a little bit to us about what the health problems were that these yeah. workers were having and what you did to yeah. try and figure, figure out the problem? Sure, that was uh, in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s. Um, it was, in fact, it was known much more before that, but in the mid-80s, the University of Pittsburgh got a little bit of money from uh, Cotton Incorporated, and there was a problem with cotton workers who are exposed during the carding, during the processing of cotton, uh, to cotton dust, whatever that may be. It's obviously, it's a, it's a mixture of many, many, many things. And at the time we thought that bacteria would play um, a role with it, and particularly endotoxins. Endotoxins are produced by gram-negative bacteria. It's in the outer cell wall of these bacteria, and um, the uh, toxicity is associated with the lipid components and the 
uh, immunogenicity uh, with the polysaccharide component of these cell walls from uh, bacteria. Now, they are known to produce breathing problems in exposed uh, persons. And certainly the cotton worker is you know, one of many uh, of, of the exposed uh, people. So uh, we at the university at the time, uh, my, my former teacher and later on my boss, Dr. Allery, Eve Allery, uh, we started looking at that. And I was responsible for the particulate matter and setting up uh, exposures to cotton dust, and we can't, and today you can't use human volunteers anymore. So we used uh, guinea pigs to produce or study the effect of cotton dust on the lungs and on the breathing ability of guinea pigs. Interesting. Peter, I've got a question for you. Sure. Uh, were these workers that were working in the mill, were they entirely unprotected? Were they given respirators? Did Ed. this work environment have ventilation? If you looked, I saw a couple of cotton mills, and this is this is now 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And I, I think it's like a farmer. I don't really think you can educate a farmer uh, to wear a, a, a respirator and test it and tell him about filtration efficiency. Uh, it was kind of the accepted risk of the profession. If you do that, well, you will be coughing a little bit. That, yeah, it, that's when OSHA started looking at it, and we have a cotton dust standard today. We developed samplers to sample for cotton dust in the workplace, which was relatively new. So I think we learned about the disease from way before OSHA and started looking into it uh, closer at, you know, as, as time went on. That's interesting. Now, these bacteria, and the reason I think that we, we can discuss this with respect to indoor air quality, we also find bacteria and fungi that are in the indoor environment and I'm wondering if there's any if you could give us any insight as to you know what your feeling is after teaching the last five years uh, people doing mold remediation doing indoor environmental quality investigations what's your what are your thoughts on how the types of studies you did back then relate to what's happening in the indoor environment today well, uh, yes, I mean, it, it has, it has uh, uh, applicability. Um, uh, certainly, we, we have bacteria in the indoor environment, no doubt about that. And we are not really 100% sure whether it's only the bacteria. I, I certainly, and it makes a lot of sense to me, um, yeah, too much of anything is not good for you. That 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 is well known. And uh, I was thinking about it as I learned more and more about molds and mold in indoor environments. And studies were done. Uh, uh, summary papers were published in Canada and in the United States and in Europe. Obviously, molds are you know universal. They are you encounter them everywhere. 
And uh, you know, some some of these molds produce pretty powerful chemicals. I mean, you know, the best known is probably you know penicillin, which is produced by a mold called penicillium. That's pretty powerful stuff. And I uh, kind of was thinking back, and I said, you know, we concentrated um, at these endotoxins. But as I said before, if if you go in a cotton mill and you look at cotton dust, you know, there's, there are all kinds of things in there. There may be silicates in there, certainly... Um, uh, some chemicals, agricultural chemicals, call them pesticides, certainly bacteria, and I have no doubt <clears throat> that there are a ton of molds uh, living very happily uh, on cotton dust or in cotton dust. <clears throat> so it would be, I think it would be interesting to maybe revisit that again and um, get some young people in um, who would be interested? The question is, who will fund it? Um, who would be interested in it? Uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, all the people who were involved in those studies are retired and are gone. And there are no new young people who have shown any interest in uh, in that arena. So that's, that's un in a way, unfortunate. And, and and maybe hey it doesn't have to be done at the University of Pittsburgh. There are many other good universities where people are interested in uh, such uh, issues, and uh, well they can carry the ball and uh, maybe we make advances there. I've got a question, Joe. You know maybe the funding should uh, for this study should come from Mexico or another country that's providing the workers that are actually doing this work. What well, do you think about that? Hey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, yeah, that is a possibility, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with having several sponsors for one common goal. I don't see anything wrong with that. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I I could see General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford doing a study on better tires. You know, I mean, they are obviously all three interested in that one. Absolutely. Or something like that. With with indoor air quality and right now the you know the hot topic is mold yeah and um many people refer to it as toxic mold which we would like to i i would like to at least get people away from using that terminology because as Dietrich here can explain anything can be toxic so we want to get away from the use of just toxic mold and uh, black mold, and just discuss the fact that too much of anything can be bad. Oh, absolutely. It's the dose that kills. It's not uh, uh, the, the chemical. Yeah, uh, Too much of table salt can kill you. Uh, too much if you drink distilled water faster than you can eliminate it. And you read that sometimes during the summer when little kids have drinking contests. All of a sudden, people are dead from drinking water that nobody thinks of as being toxic. It's the dose that kills. This principle has been known for 500 years, and uh, it's not the poison. It is the dose. Too much of anything is not good for you, and it doesn't matter what it is. Now, when, when we talk about the dose that kills, is there individual susceptibility with respect to 
toxicity, or would we be talking about something other than toxicity when we add individual susceptibility into the uh, picture? Well, you touched on probably one of the most difficult top, uh, topics in this whole uh, field. Yeah, sure. Uh, individual susceptibility is, is of, of concern, and uh, some people react to certain things for whatever reason. Uh, ask an allergist, why does somebody react to it and somebody else doesn't? Um, that is one of the most difficult, difficult things to study and to explain and to get a handle on. So that is certainly another aspect that is out there. And we have seen that in certain environments, certain people reacted, others didn't react. Um, in fact, in indoor environment, we, we say that if if 80% of people in an office building are happy, this is kind of good. We, are, we, we discriminate, unfortunately, against these other 20%. And there may be in these other 20%, maybe somebody who cannot uh, work in an environment for whatever reason. Like I sometimes say, some people got dealt a very bad hand on the day they were born with certain deficiencies. And uh, you know, what are we going to do with those people? That is one of the most difficult questions to answer. That really is a tough question. I, I have a uh, fellow board member. I'm on the board of the Indoor Air Quality Association, who will be a guest on our show in the future, Carl Grimes, who specializes in assisting people who have these individual susceptibility issues and are the most difficult cases for people who are trying to investigate yeah. indoor environmental quality uh, problems. I didn't talk to him about it, but I just uh, saw uh, him, uh, oh, when, two weeks ago, yes. At the uh, summer camp. At the summer camp up uh, in Massachusetts, and Westford, Massachusetts. And how was the summer camp this year, Dieter? Oh, well, it is a couple of very interesting problems. Uh, one major topic, and we played around with it almost all day long, uh, was yeah, uh, questions of energy and energy conservation, alternate um, um, energy sources, uh, whether it's a thermal or wind and so on, and associated uh, building specs for it with better uh, insulation, uh, with you know, generating electricity through wind or thermal uh, uh, collectors on the roof. Not too good an idea in Pittsburgh, but there certainly are areas in the country where that is a, a, a very uh, viable um, possibility, yes. Interesting. Cliff, did you have anything else you'd well, like to Well, I had add? a few things I was going to say. Uh, a couple of things you're not going to hear on this broadcast are any ball scores. You're not going to hear anything about the weather. No, uh, <laughs> we won't be we won't be discussing the weather or any ball scores. We're going to uh, try and focus on the indoor environment, but also there's there's other issues that affect the indoor environment, and I think that's where uh, Cliff is probably more 
uh, certainly has a lot more experience than than I do, and and probably uh, Dr. Wow as well. In and that would be in disaster restoration situations. Um, when we talk about the cotton dust and the bacteria and the fungi or molds that are within that dust, um, it kind of leads me to think about what types of problems people in New Orleans, for instance, are encouraging. I know, Cliff, you were there um, not long ago uh, trying to assist with uh, guidelines for the cleanup. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found and what your thoughts are? Well, I think in New Orleans, um, I think everyone was just surprised by the overall devastation and also surprised by the amount of time that had passed and what visibly appeared, uh, the small amount that had been accomplished. You know, we drove uh, through many neighborhoods, and, you know, there was garbage on the streets and debris, and, uh, you know, cars were piled upon fences and just incredible devastation. And what was interesting is I had a personal experience that I'd like to contrast with that, which was uh, following Hurricane Emily. I had an opportunity to uh, be in Mexico. And the reason I was there is uh, we have a condominium down there, and I was on the building committee of the condominium, and the little town in which the condo uh, is located was literally ground zero for Hurricane Emily. And the amazing thing is my wife and, there were, uh, and I were down there a uh, day and a half uh, after the hurricane, and it was just incredible. They had thousands of people with machetes. They had uh, government workers out. They had you know, the military working, and roads were cleared. And they had uh, utility companies that were you know, putting up utilities and getting the electrical power and so on and so forth. And within seven days, we actually had full power restored to our building. And what was amazing is the difference of what we, my wife and I could see and other Americans in a third world country, how they seem to have managed this disaster much better than the disaster was managed uh, down in New Orleans. Uh, I had the opportunity to go down with uh, a group with the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration, which is ASCR. Uh, the group was solicited uh, to provide uh, consulting work uh, to FEMA, and we were subcontractors for a FEMA contractor. And our the point uh, of our work down there was to go through visit homes and begin to develop guidelines. Uh, on this team, we had a scientist, Dr. Michael Pinto. Uh, we had a contractor, Frank Heaton. Uh, we had some people that were with uh, various government agencies. There was a fellow uh, named Bob Went, who was with uh, a group that specializes in studying uh, water damage and so on and so forth. Uh, there were other people that were with the uh, Army Corps of Engineers and, and so on and so forth. And we went, we visited the homes. Uh, we looked at uh, a variety of different water damage scenarios, homes which were totally underwater and homes which might have only had one or two feet in it. And one of the most interesting things that I noticed in, in going through these homes was mold. And what was amazing is we would see very little or no mold below the line of flood water. And above that is where mold proliferated. And it seemed that all this mold that grew, grew long after, you know, the water damage event. It could have been, you know, weeks after, uh, you know, in, in our case down there. Uh, we actually looked at some of the existing approaches. You know, we would drive around. We would see people using bleach. And uh, there's just a lot of government 
information on the use of bleach, which we felt was incorrect. Uh, many people think bleach was a cleaner. It's not. Uh, we actually went in and did photo documentation showing severe corrosion damage that was caused by the bleach, where they would actually uh, go in uh, and apply it. Uh, one of the things the government was trying to gather from this information is how to prevent this in the future. Are there ways that homes could be uh, built better? Are there ways that different types of building materials could be in incorporated? And we actually had the opportunity to see how some buildings held up to it and how some buildings didn't. You know, interestingly enough, the older the buildings were, the better they held up. You know, buildings that had stone foundations uh, seemed to be pretty water resistant. Uh, you know, it's water is just pretty tough on drywall in general. It's tough on drywall, it's tough on paper. Uh, when we have real wood products, when we have stone, when we have glass, when we have metals, and so on and so forth, those materials tended to uh, survive a little bit better. But it was a great uh, opportunity. Uh, we put together uh, some guidelines. These guidelines went through various editing committees and so on and so forth and had to be submitted to the government and you know, keep going around uh, in these circles. Uh, one of the things that uh, we had learned from this experience is uh, Pittsburgh, uh, a year previously had suffered uh, significant water damage following Hurricane Ivan. And we actually took some of the techniques uh, that we were that we actually developed in dealing with response of Hurricane Ivan and put those into uh, documents and protocols that were actually now uh, you know being uh, presented by FEMA to the public as you know being the, the proper and accurate way in which to do this remediation, which actually meant using a lot of water and using detergents and uh, antimicrobial agents to literally pressure wash uh, and decontaminate these environments so that they would be significantly decontaminated. One of the issues that you have with flood water uh, is some of the impurities that can be in it. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, cars are going to get overturned. You're going to end up having fuel in the water. Uh, you're going to have kerosene. You're going to have diesel fuel. You're going to have pesticides. Certainly more than one dry cleaning plant was underwater down there, so you're going to have dry cleaning solvents, uh, all sorts of pesticides. You had dead animals. You had dead people. people. You had just about uh, anything you can think of in that situation. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are with respect to going back to your discussion about how the recovery went in Mexico versus in New Orleans. Obviously, New Orleans was a unique situation being in that bowl that it was in. Do you think maybe it partially had to do with the fact that it seems that part of Mexico get hit gets hit pretty regularly? Uh, it, actually, that, it actually doesn't. It does uh, not? Okay. No. We've been going there for probably about 12 years, and this is the first time that they've actually uh, had it, a hurricane. And they actually got hit twice. Uh, first was Emily, and then they were hit again by a hurricane, which just stayed over top and just inundated uh, Cancun primarily with, uh, with water. One of the interesting things is the way that they build differently in Mexico, and typically they build out of concrete block, they use styrofoam insulation, uh, very little drywall. Now, in our own condominium, which is about a thousand square feet, uh, we've got probably less than 200 square feet of drywall, and, and that's generally just in entry walkway ceilings and in bathrooms. That's the only place we have drywall. Well, that's interesting. While we're 
discussing this topic, I know, Dr. Wild, that you uh, live in Carnegie, Pennsylvania, and uh, that was one of the areas that was hardest hit by the hurricanes a few years back. Yes, and and the building of which I'm a part owner, I found out, was on the lowest part of Carnegie, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm curious what types of problems ensued after the uh, waters receded. Um, here, obviously, we didn't have water that, well, maybe people don't realize this, but we had this flooding, and then the waters receded fairly quickly, I would say within a day or two. Within a day, yes. And then um, we had basements that were filled with water. We had um, numerous buildings that had you know, severe water damage. What types of things did you see, um, and what, well, what I, worked I was and didn't? Partially the good Samaritan, uh, uh, friends of, and colleagues of another friend of mine, they had office buildings down there, and they had never seen a moisture meter, and I showed them how to use a moisture meter. I showed them drying techniques on how to dry it as quickly as possible. But there was the, the big problem, and we did have some problems over here with infections. Uh, the building, of which I'm a part owner, we had about 12 inches of mug in there, which had to be shoveled up. Uh, many records were destroyed. We just didn't. It the last flood in Carnegie was something like 120 years ago. So nobody expected really yeah, the severity of it. So um, uh, we were kind of lucky. At, uh, in, in, in my building over there, we had the first floor to the doorknobs. Needless to say, everything, the heating system, uh, telephone system, hot water system in the basement was gone. Uh, they had to be replaced, and um, we kind of uh, yeah we were careful you know, with with cuts and and cleaned that one up, and um, on the other hand it is amazing when when you when you do have a catastrophic event event how people do help each other and. Um, it, it, it's it's nice to have a nice neighbor, and you know I helped as much uh, as I could. And you remember Purvis, a common friend of ours, he yes. was down there and helped other people. In fact, his house was flooded too. So, but uh, it it all worked out all right, and um, with common help, um, we probably could have used a little bit more how should I say, expert advice, uh, because nobody, I, I didn't have really experience with remediating all of that. I knew a couple of things, and a couple of things came naturally, but the, the main thing was that you helped each other as much as you could to get over with it as fast as possible, and it did work, no doubt about it. My understanding from talking to our mutual friend Purvis was that one of the problems, and, and I think this is a, typically a problem after these types of events, is that people were smart enough to tear out materials and uh, dispose of especially porous materials that had been soaked, but then they didn't have quite enough understanding of how long it takes for other materials to dry, and yes. they started to replace things too quickly. That is that is exactly right. Uh, well, there were many opportunities to throw away an old couch. <laughs> they were all over the place. 
and and old re car wrecks in the backyard they were also hauled away and i guess uh, uh, we had special cleanup crews uh, through the city of carnegie uh, that helped out but it is amazing it is amazing how long it took to really dry things out and people said oh i want my kitchen ready i just put in a little bit of insulation i put up drywall then all of a sudden three weeks later they had problems and on top of it, the saving grace really in the area was that two weeks after the flood, maybe three weeks, there wasn't a drop of rain. Yes, I recall. That, Very low that is the amenities. amazing thing that really helped things, yes. Absolutely. Uh, Cliff, did you have well, anything I, I, to add? Uh, sure, a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that I saw in both Pittsburgh, and uh, I think even more so than New Orleans, was this abnormal focus on mold. Everyone was worried about mold. Everyone was worried about toxic mold and, and so on and so forth. And I think in New Orleans that was one of the things that was different. I think the, the EPA and the government was kind of on what was in that water very, very quickly. One of the things I think was common in, in both places, both in Pittsburgh following this catastrophic flooding and in New Orleans, was uh, the flooding with the mud and once the mud dried, this dust. You know, the amazing thing is that the same thing happened in Pittsburgh that happened in New Orleans. And we have many homes here that are treated for subterranean termites just the way that homes are treated down in Louisiana for subterranean termites. And the funny thing is, Dieter, I don't know that we had a Pittsburgh cough or anything like that in Pittsburgh, did we? I, n not that I know of. I heard... From hearsay, from acquaintances whom I know, I've been living in Carnegie, which, by the way, is the suburb of uh, Pittsburgh, for those who don't know that. It's where all the rich people live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have uh, many friends, uh, uh, over friends and acquaintances, and in many instances we heard, I said, boy, you know, I came down with something, and my wife did come down with something, and my son or daughter. So I, it, And it makes sense. I mean... It, the, the flooding started with literally with uh, the backing up of the sewage system. I mean, that that that's 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 tough, you know. And uh, there is a lot of stuff in sewage system that you know you don't want to inhale or uh, uh, be exposed to. Absolutely. And a, a lot of people used uh, some antimicrobials here and there. Um, for better or for worse, they use... It's always for better, Dieter. That's uh, yeah. just a matter of opinion. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, Clorox, and I said Clorox there and there, and I said, you know, Clorox is, is good in some situations, but there are other situations where Clorox really doesn't do the job. And uh, But those are things, um, you know, one has to still discuss. And there is a great deal of discussion on those issues going on now. In fact... Um, CDC has released some new guidelines for recovery after uh, floods and after hurricanes. And um, if you would like to get uh, a link to that, we will put that link up on the iaqtraining.com website and make sure that you have a link to that. Good. There are some uh, very good documents that have come out of the uh, work that Cliff and others did while they were in uh, New Orleans and also uh, the Gulf Coast in general. We had quite a bit of uh, 
you know, problems within Florida. Um, there's a, a great deal of good information available now. It's it's getting better as time goes on, and I think you'll see these materials updated more and more. And um, we will be sure to have those posted on our site so that anybody who's interested can yeah, follow the links. Unfortunately, you know, apparently you 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 got to go through the bad part to realize of what you don't know. And uh, all of a sudden we said, hey, okay, maybe that was the wrong place, that was the right way to do it, and uh, uh, that that's how you learn. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, uh, Cliff, did you have anything else to add on that subject, or should we? No, not really. I'm done with that one. Okay, great. Well, let's, uh, let's move on here and uh, talk a little bit about what's happening in the industry. I know that uh, some of you are part of the industry that will listen to this show, and um, I'd like to maybe even talk a little bit more about uh, what we hope to do here down the road with the show. I am uh, on the board of directors right now for the Indoor Air Quality Association. For those of you that aren't familiar with the Indoor Air Quality Association, it is a uh, an association of indoor air quality professionals, both on the remediation side, the investigation side, building owners, and um, HVAC contractors, anyone who does work that may somehow affect the indoor environment. And Cliff is uh, on the board with the IICRC, which is the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification and uh, has been a longtime member of both the uh, IICRC, the IAQA, and another organization that I'd like him to uh, maybe expand upon a little bit. He, he mentioned ASCAR briefly, but the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration is one that I have found, ama- I, I don't know, I, I come from this IAQA background. I always wear these, you know, IAQA uh, blinders, I guess, and when I saw the documents coming out after the um, floods, a lot of them had ASCAR on them. And I'm curious, why do you think that is, Cliff? Well, ASCAR, Association of Specialists in Cleaning and, and Restoration, has gone uh, through a couple of name changes. I believe they're going to be celebrating their 60th uh, anniversary later this year. It started out as a rug cleaning organization, and by rug cleaning, that was strictly uh, plant cleaning where either oriental rugs were cleaned or they literally would come into your home and send a crew and they would take up your carpet and take it back to their plant and they would wash it and they would dry it and then they would uh, bring it back and and reinstall it uh, in your home. Uh, ASCAR then kind of got into on-location carpet cleaning, so that was probably its next expansion. And its next expansion was probably in the late 60s and 19. 70s into fire restoration. Uh, that business began or be, began uh, its evolution process, and today, which you know was a business, now I would say it's pretty fully evolved now, and uh, it's become an industry. The fire and disaster repair industry is huge; uh, it's multi-billion-dollar uh, a year uh, industry. And I think when it came to cleaning sciences, ASCAR has always been uh, a leader. Uh, They have a laboratory. They've always employed uh, scientists, uh, many times on a Ph.D. level, uh, textile chemists, uh, et cetera, to help uh, do research, help solve members' problems. 
and uh, you know it's an international organization. ASCAR has members literally around the world. Uh, currently, I would suspect that members number well over a thousand, and typically these are larger firms uh, that have. Uh, I think pretty stable employment. You know, the funny thing is when you go to an ASCAR convention, you tend to see the same people, and they're with the same people year after year uh, after year. So I would say few ASCAR members go out of business on an annual basis, whereas the rest of the industry, there are a lot of startups. There are people who just don't like it, uh, and they cycle out of it. And I think one of the interesting things that happens in terms of this industry also is you have a certain amount of people that come from the construction business as well. They're either remodeling contractors, new home builders, and so on and so forth. And these people have a tendency to flow in and out of the disaster restoration industry when home building and remodeling work isn't so good. Uh, as, as far as being involved, uh, I guess maybe it was more being in the right place at the right time, okay. and uh, I think that it was probably, you know, more on good work that they've done in the past, uh, acknowledgments, Asgard's done some work with Bob Went and other people, uh, you know, with the government before, and I think they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And with the right relationships, it, it appears. Right. That's interesting, and um, we we will be continuing to discuss association issues, and uh, I wanted to start this week by just allowing the group to give an overview of a few of the associations that um, are involved with indoor air quality issues. There are many others. Dr. Wow is a member of one, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, and I wondered if you could uh, give us a little background on the AIHA and um, what your thoughts are with respect to their becoming much more involved, it seems, at least to me, recently in the indoor environmental quality industry. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, in well, The American Industrial Hygiene Association has a long history, and, of course, it was an industrial hygiene organization uh, during a time when a lot of help was needed in in, in, in chemical companies and in the steel industry, in the building industry, and so on. And um, in, in many instances, we have solved the problems. We got a handle on the problems. We know how to handle the problems. And um, uh, certainly in the last, I'd say, about five years, um, well, in, in the old days, we thought that industrial hygiene was you know, blue-collar worker with a lot of dust and a lot of noise and a lot of heat stress. Well, obviously, they are, in particularly things were changing in this country. Uh, there are also, all of a sudden, uh, a lot of other office workers who are in an environment. And it took some time for uh, the old-timers to change and uh, bring some new thinking in it. Uh, which is quite normal. That is, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's how things do evolve. And there is more emphasis on the office environment, and those are workers too. That is an industrial environment. At first, we didn't think of it that way. And um, they have um, issued guidelines for um, biological sampling, for biological remediation, just like the EPA did. 
just like many other laboratories uh, did, uh, like other companies do. Uh, they have... Um, uh, they they're getting more and more involved. They just um, uh, published a, a, a new book. I have it over here. I can't. I, I don't recall the total, uh, the exact title, but it's the um, um, the field guide. The, yeah, that, that's right. The field guide for the determination in, of biological in, contaminants in indoor right. environmental samples, I believe it is. Yep, that that sounds that sounds just about right. Their second edition came out, and it it seems to be much more complete, more thorough, and and I think the key point being that the AIHA is trying to ensure that CIHs like yourself, you're a certified industrial hygienist become more versed in the building science issues that go into trying to solve these indoor environmental quality problems. Absolutely. You know, I, I was a graduate from one of the uh, most recognized uh, occupational environmental industrial hygiene departments in the country at the University of Pittsburgh. And, I mean, well, I graduated in 18, no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> 18 uh, what? <laughs> 1972. So I was there basically from 1968 to 72. Uh, that issue wasn't mentioned. Mainly we didn't have experts in it. We were interested in, in the industrial environment uh, you know, with, with the dusts and the smokes and the mists and the noise and the heat stress and chemical exposures. And uh, we were not specialized in that arena. We didn't have that there. Ah, how, like I always say, it wasn't a sexy topic at the time. You couldn't get money for it to study it. And um, so literally everybody who graduated, um, that was never mentioned. It was never mentioned that uh, these problems are there. And um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that. We are switching a little bit of allegiance over here, and um, uh, uh, that is needed. And uh, the other people, uh, the, the white-collar workers, uh, uh, do deserve to be uh, handled in, a, in the right way, too. Well, no I'm, doubt about it. I'm glad you bring that up, because we, we've also decided that we would like to make sure that we include information for consumers and one of the things that I've found is that the Certified Industrial Hygiene CIH designation brings a level of respect uh, to people and insurance companies and others that um, I, I don't think is wrong, but I do think it's important for consumers, building owners, etc., to make sure that whoever you're using, whether they have a CIH or some of these other designations we will talk about as a part of this show, we have what we call certified indoor environmentalists in the Indoor Air Quality Association. The IICRC has an AMRT program, Applied Microbial Remediation Technicians, etc., etc. All of these programs may be very good programs, but I still think it's important to make sure that the individual that you are working with has experience and knowledge about the indoor environment and building sciences prior to using those people to help you with your indoor yeah, environment. I, I think that is really, this is going to be the future, uh, that we will be able to take a good look at a structure 
and kind of get a feel for it of what will work and which cannot work or which uh, could be improved upon, uh, be it building materials, be it drainage of water from it, be it the ventilation. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about ventilation in homes in the future. Absolutely. That's a, it's a brand new topic that is being pushed right now, has been neglected. Uh, yeah, who would have talked about a a, a, a air exchange ventilation system in a residential building. Nobody did. It just didn't exist. Nobody cared about it. And now it's becoming the soup du jour for yes, that's the, right. the HVAC uh, manufacturers, the people yes. who do the installation, the people who are developing new products. In fact, I do have a commitment from a gentleman I have a great deal of respect for, uh, Mr. Andy Osk, who is also on the board at IAQA, who is an HVAC uh, professional engineer and an HVAC specialist, and he will be joining us on one of our future broadcasts to discuss how heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems affect the indoor environment. And oh, I, I, I'm, I, I gladly listen to that. Uh, I, it is a viable topic, and it's a very interesting topic, and uh, something that has been neglected. Well, that's great. Uh, Cliff, I th we only have a, f a few moments left here. I know you have a few thoughts. Well, actually, uh, what I wanted to do is talk to some of the listeners about a couple of the topics for our next uh, show that we were having. And you know, One of the things that we're going to be talking about, and we'd probably like to bring you back to either and get your opinions on this, is what we call Joanna. I'm semi-retired, so I... Uh, <laughs> well, well these, are, these, these subjects are kind of uh, right up your alley. Uh, yeah, the, fir the first one is what we call the Tyvek effect. And whether, uh, you know, when someone shows up in your house and they're wearing Tyvek and respiratory protective equipment yeah, and yeah, so on and yeah. so forth, uh, you know, what effect that that has on our potential client's heart rate and yeah. metabolism and so on and so forth. And the second thing we'd like to discuss with you is your opinion of personal protective equipment utilized in the mold remediation industry. I mean, are we using enough? Is it, do we have it just right? Well, probably uh, are not. Are we using yeah. uh, too much? And, you know, we'll bring you back next time and we'll talk about sure. that. Uh, we also have a couple of trivia questions that we would like to ask those people that are in the audience. And uh, trivia question number one is, uh, what is the Latin name or Latin derivation of the term stachybotrys. You know, we hear the term all the time. What does it mean? Uh, oh, we'd, boy, we'd, we'd I like read to, that and I forgot. We'd like to know. Okay, the second one, and you may or may not know, Dieter, and if you do, we hope that uh, you don't shout the answer out, is what is the derivation of another uh, mold name that we hear pretty common, and that is aspergillus. From what is Latin uh, is, is that derived? Why don't we handle it this way? Um, anybody who is listening in who would like to take a stab at uh, answering those questions, if you could send me an email at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at com. give us your answer, and the and first the person prize. with the right answer gets the prize Absolutely. that uh, Mr. Zlotnick here is going to provide for us. Absolutely, uh, and it's kind of a surprise. It is a surprise. All right. Great. So, again, uh, the, the questions that we're looking to have answered are the Latin derivations of the word stachybotrys. What does it mean in English? And also, uh, what does aspergillus mean, and what is its Latin derivation? Very good. Well, what I'd like to do at this point is thank our 
able assistance here, uh, Harry and uh, Zach, for helping us here in the studio. I'd like to thank Cliff Slotnick for joining me here in the studio, and certainly a special thanks to you, Dietrich Weil, for joining us today. Um, and last but not least, we certainly want to mention the Talk Shoe people for providing this forum. Uh, I think it's the new way of communicating, educating, and gathering people together with similar interests. I'm very excited about the future programs we have planned for you, and my final uh, final thank you will go to our sponsors for today's show. That would be IE Connections, the newspaper for the indoor air quality industry, microband systems, and the IAQ Training Institute. We can find IAQ Training Institute at iaqtraining.com. For microband systems, just go to microbandsystems.com. And for your subscription to Indoor Environment Connections newspaper, you can go to ieconnections.com. Thank you all for listening in, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again on the next show. And thanks to all of our guests and assistants here in the studio. Do we have a date for the new show? We were we will be uh posting that on the iaqtraining.com website. Oh, okay. It might... is tentatively scheduled now for September 12th. This is our kickoff practice show. We hope it went well. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again for being here.